Welcome to Game Night with the Saints. We're your hosts, Jess and Brad St. Pierre. We're a husband and wife who have a passion for board games, and this podcast is dedicated to sharing that passion. All right, we're back. Episode 5. Got a great episode for you today. If you're unfamiliar with our format, we're going to talk about our favorite board game memories of the last couple of weeks, followed by our notable news and crowdfunding corner before diving into our feature game, which is Obsession. Uh, So why don't you go ahead and start, Jess? What's your board game memory for this week? Well, I feel a little guilty because this is the second uh, podcast in a row that my board game memory isn't actually about playing a game. (laughs) Um, Because if I'm going to be really honest with our audience, Jane is still teething. Brad and I have been very tired. So we haven't got in as much board game playing as we would like the past couple weeks. But I do have a board game adjacent memory. And that is the other day when Brad was off. We took Jaina to our local game store. And it's the first time she's been there since she's been a little itty bitty baby. But she just started wearing face masks. So we took her. And she thought it was the greatest thing because... (laughs) she figured out how to open boxes, like pull up um, board game boxes on her one of her little Hava games the other week. So she wanted to open inside everything in the game store, which I told her I didn't think the owner would think very highly of. <laughs> but she did get to pick out a game. So um, we found one for her there that's age three plus, which is a little older than her, but um, we thought it would work well. So what about you, Brad? What's your memory? Yeah, so my memory is actually about playing the game that Jana picked at uh, the Games Keep. That's our local game store. And uh, it's Merry Magica by Pegasus Spiel. And it's, yeah, rated for 3+. And the essence of the game is basically you have a little wooden witch meeple that has a magnet inside it. And some of the cardboard chits have... Uh, probably a piece of metal in them so they're magnetic and you basically have to find the magical pieces of clothing for the witch and those are the ones that stick to the magnet and uh, you know we had pretty good fun with it Jaina did pretty well with it all things considered Um, but my favorite part was when she won the game she got really really excited and just ran around the house with the witch meeple doing you know a victory lap (laughs) I feel like she's definitely her mother's daughter in this (laughs) regard. I don't always do a victory lap when I beat you (laughs) in board games. Okay, so let's jump into our notable news and our crowdfunding corner. Uh, Do you have any news this week? Yeah, there's a couple of uh, pretty big pieces of news. The main one is that Asmodee, probably the largest publisher of board games in the world, uh, because they have so many smaller companies under their corporate umbrella is being sold. Uh, It's unknown at this time who the buyer is, but Goldman Sachs has apparently been actioned to be the broker for the sale. Um, And the apparent sticker price is 2 billion euros. They were previously purchased by PAI Partners, which is a French investment firm for approximately 143 million euros. So that's a pretty good return on investment. Well, it's not surprising, right? We've really seen the popularity of board games just skyrocket through the past, you know, 18, 19 months of this pandemic, where things that, you know, people may never have considered buying before and sitting down at the table to play are 
flying off the shelves. So, Yeah, and it'll be interesting to see how the board game landscape changes because whenever you have a major shakeup like this, things are going to change, right? People are already upset with Asmodee for their customer service policies and stuff. They're representative much more of general corporate America now instead of, you know, the niche hobby uh, facilitation that we've all come to know and appreciate. And it'll be interesting to see with new ownership whether that'll get better or worse. Anything else? Uh, Yeah, one other major piece, which I think is pretty notable, is uh, Gloomhaven Digital, which has been on Steam Early Access for, I want to say, two years now, is uh, going to be updated to include the full campaign on October 20th. So if you haven't already bought physical Gloomhaven, or if you've bought it and the time it takes to set up and store and all that stuff is just too much effort, this could be a really good way to play Gloomhaven. Well, that's one that's not in our collection yet. But, um, yeah, well, we do have Frosthaven coming on the way, though. <laughs> Maybe it's an option for us. What's your crowdfunding corner this week, Brad? Sure. Yeah, I went with, uh, for crowdfunding corner, I went with Voidfall, which is designed by Nigel Buckle and David Turtsey. And it's illustrated by Ian O'Toole and published by Mind Clash Games, currently on Kickstarter. Now, for those who don't, no, uh, Mind Clash Games is a pretty popular board game publisher. They've got such hits as Anachrony, uh, Tricarion. They did a very successful uh, Kickstarter, I want to say last year, for Perseverance, um, which looks like a pretty interesting set of games. Um, but Voidfall is a 4X game with uh, strong Euro sensibilities. And if you don't know what a 4X game, it stands for... Uh, if you don't know what a 4X game is, it stands for Explore, Expand, Exploit, and Exterminate. Think um, something like Stellaris for PC gamers. Um, and it's promising a minimum amount of luck gameplay and a deterministic combat system, which I think will really appear to appeal to Euro gamers in general. But what really caught my eye with this is the fact that they're offering competitive, co-op, and solo modes. It's kind of a real struggle sometimes for the 4X genre um, to feel good at smaller player counts because they often thrive on player interaction. So I'm hoping that like the co-op mode and having AI enemies in the game can kind of fill out those smaller player counts and make it feel like a worthwhile experience even at two. Well, and I think the only one that we have in our collection that plays well at two is Empires of the Void. correct yeah yeah that's the only forex in our collection right now because most of them don't play well at two yeah yeah so uh, i think between the euro elements and the uh, co-op nature of the game maybe it'll focus less on that interaction or possibly just have enough interaction with the game itself that you won't feel the sting at smaller player counts so that's why i'm uh, interested in it and that's a voidfall and it's on Kickstarter through October 17th. What about you, Jess? What did you pick this week? Well, this one was easy for me because this is a game that Brad and I have been eagerly awaiting for it to come to Kickstarter. And it is Artisans of Splendid Vale. And I really thought I was going to have to fight Brad or rock, paper, scissor him for the getting to have this <laughs> as the crowdfunding corner because... Um, it's by Renegades Game Studio, but the designer is 
the ever so talented Nikki Valens, who has worked on some of our favorite games, um, Eldritch Horror, Mansions of Madness, just to name a couple. Yeah, definitely. So I have to confess, I didn't even really know anything about it till the Kickstarter launched. I just knew that Nikki was doing it and I loved their work. So it was already probably going to be one that we <laughs> agreed to back from that reason alone. But there's so much to get excited about this game. And I hope, you know, when you're listening to this, you jump over and you take a look at it. Um, I'm going to go through the stats and then I'll, I'll kind of fangirl <laughs> through okay. what I'm excited about. Um, so it's a self-described cooperative adventure game set in a magical land of beauty, adventure, and magic. It's for two to four players. Uh, the campaign is 14 plus, And uh, like I said, it's a campaign style game, which Brad and I love. Like yeah, we still definitely. we still have sleeping gods on our table right now. So probably when Artisans comes, it will take a spot on the table until we finish the campaign. Um, the artwork, and I'm I'm very drawn to games with beautiful artwork, and the artwork of everything that is included, both in the corset and in the stretch goals, is just incredible. It's, it's really colorful. Yes, it's very colorful. It's just very pleasing to look at. Um, the meeples, at this point, if you are listening to this podcast for the fifth time, you know what a sucker I am for adorable meeples. <laughs> and this game has over 64, I think, of them as the count, like 64 of the absolutely adorable meeples. Um, we talk a lot about how... Inclusivity is important, and this game really takes that to the next level with their characters and giving all of them different pronouns, and they are not the standard campaign-looking characters, and I love that. I love it so much that um, I really hope that we see more and more of that in game design going forward. Um, Brad, I also know you're really excited about this game. Anything you want to add I mean, it's just been such a crazy couple of years for strong narrative-driven campaign games. I feel like, you know, Roleplayer Adventures came out. We're super excited about that. We just got Sleeping Gods, and it's, you know, spoilers for whenever we review it, amazing. And I think Artisans of Splendid Veil is going to be right up there with those. Um, Nikki Valens did Legacy of Dragonholt, which received strong critical acclaim for what is essentially a choose-your-own-story kind of game. And uh, this looks like it's going to be even stronger than that. So uh, from a gameplay perspective, narratively, I know it'll be incredibly solid. Um, but from a gameplay perspective, it looks like it's going to be even stronger than that. So yeah, get get hyped for Artisans of Splendid Veil. Vale. I think it's going to be great. Well, and just to give everyone a forewarning, it's only going to be on Kickstarter for a couple more days after this podcast goes live because it's coming, um, it closes, it's fully funded, but it closes on Friday, October 8th at 7 p.m. Eastern time. So go over there, check it out. I think you'll be as excited as we are for this one if you love campaign games. Yeah, definitely. So... Time to jump into our game of the week, huh? Yep. All right. So this week we are uh, taking a look at Obsession, 
designed by Dan Halligan and published by Kayenta Games. Ruin has come to our family. <laughs> Just kidding. That's a uh, little Darkest Dungeon joke for those who are unfamiliar. <laughs> Just didn't want me to do that, but I did it anyway. Oh, you're a nerd, <laughs> but I love you. <laughs> uh, all right. So in Obsession, uh, players take on the roles of heads of Victorian gentry families who have fallen on hard times. Your reputation is in tatters, your estate has become dilapidated, and you have become unable to find suitable marriage matches for your adult children. It falls to you then to host the most prestigious social events that you can manage, inviting the social elite, restoring your estate's reputation, and if you play your cards right, marrying one of your kids into the most prestigious Fairchild family. So... This week, we're doing a little bit different before Brad goes into his more in-depth overview, so to speak, um, before we get into the full review. Um, we're going to set the table now so that you get an idea of what we're looking at when we are talking about the game boards and the components. So here we go. There are two different boards in the center of the table. The first is the round marker board that in addition to having the round track also has a space on the top right for special cards called VP cards and a space opposite the VP cards to the left for the theme cards. You will also have placed near this board the two Fairchild cards. The second board is the marketplace for estate upgrades and additional servants as well as two decks for additional guests. One deck is for a set of regular guests, and the other are prestigious guests. A third deck for objectives is opposite the guest decks, and the servant marketplace, which has a variable number of servants for hire depending on the player count. For two players, you will have two underbutlers, two ladies' maids, two valets, and four footmen, and that is placed between the guest deck and the objective deck on the board. The marketplace runs at the bottom of the marketplace board, and it has six regular spaces ranging from 300 pounds to 800 pounds as the base price. And the leftmost portion of the market board includes two additional reserve spaces, Whereas the game goes on, certain upgrade tiles need to be placed in these spaces at a base cost of 300 pounds. Somewhere in the middle of the table will be a bag. In the bag are the remaining estate upgrade tiles. There will also be a container for the currency coins, and there are two types, 100 pound coins and 500 pound coins. Each player is given their selected family box, which contains the cards for your chosen family. They begin with their family's playing board, which will have their family crest. And each board has that family's special ability listed and a reputation tracker. Instructions for each turn's action order and a list of additional things you can spend reputation on. On the board, there is a servant track for how you move your servants. The expended servant slot is where the servants go after you've used them for an activity that turn. The servant's quarter is where servants move if they were used the turn before. And available service is for where your servants are placed for you to be able to use that turn. 
At the start of the game, each player starts with five servants. Additionally, on your player board is a square where you place the estate tile that you're using that turn. Each player also has a small organizer board you can use to line up your estate tile upgrades. Each player starts with the same five tiles, and they are lined up under their appropriate theme of essential, service, estate, prestige, and sporting. Each player is dealt two starting starter guest. Yeah, so Obsession is essentially a worker placement game. The various different workers represent specialized servants um, that are only suitable for assisting with certain activities or providing specific service to specific guests, as Jess was talking about. So as an example, a lady's maid cannot provide service to a gentleman guest who would require a valet uh, or host lawn tennis or anything like that, right? Ladies' maids typically will accompany the social elite females of, uh, you know, for given activities or whatever. Um, so on your turn, you'll select an activity to host, then invite the specific number and types of guests that activity requires to it by playing guest cards from your hand with each card representing a specific guest. From there, you'll collect favors from the guests and the activity, usually money or reputation or additional guests, whatever the case may be, new, you know, representing new business connections or whatever that, um, maybe in your head canon. Uh, from there... You can buy one tile from the builder market to improve your estate. Um, and that could be used to host a new activity in a future turn. And then it's the next player's turn. So four times per game, the courtship event occurs. And players will compare their estate standing in a specific category, such as sporting or prestige, to try and woo one of the Fairchild children to their estate until the next courtship event. And what happens there is you get to take one of the Fairchild cards and add it to your hand of cards. And they're pretty power, pretty powerful, so uh, you want to do that if you can. And then play proceeds for the specific numbers of rounds, 16 for a standard game or 20 for the extended play game. Um, and then at the end, players tally up their victory points and the person with the most VP wins. So let's jump into the actual review and discussion. And we apologize (laughs) to our listeners. Brad and I were talking when we were, we always quickly share our notes to make sure that when we're doing set the table and Brad's giving the quick overview that we're not, you know, doubling up on what we're saying too much. And we were talking about how this game is probably the most complicated we've reviewed yet. Yeah, I'd say so. And so there's a lot to it. There's a lot to the table. Like, you know, when I was reading you all the components and stuff, And the first thing, though, when we're doing the review, this game's material and components are just incredible. Like I talked about how you got um, a family box. Like it's just the actual material of the box. Like they were just really well made. The quality, it's 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 really nice. Yeah. The production values are amazing. As Jess was just pointing out, you get individual boxes for each house, which makes setup super easy. Uh, for a game of this complexity usually doesn't take us more than five minutes to set up and i think that's a real hallmark that they really thought about their storage solution uh and dan halligan the designer actually has a youtube video about how to package the box if you're not sure when you get it yeah maybe that's the only the only con i can think of is it can be difficult putting it back in the box once you've pulled it out (laughs) i mean now that we know how to do it i I think it's not too bad but uh (laughs) 
yeah, I don't I don't usually care too much about the production values, but this game definitely nails it and definitely just like Lost Rooms of Arnak makes a lot of little choices to make it easier to get to the table, which is really where you want to be when you're a board game designer, I feel like. Absolutely. And I just kind of want to set the tone. It is not a Darkest Dungeon kind of game. It is really <laughs> more of the Victorian era. So think Jane Austen and Downton Abbey and Bridgerton, which, by the way, are all things that I love. And um, Brad actually found this game, right? It was a Kickstarter reprint. Yeah. Yep. And he knew I would love it. Um, he often catches me um, if Jane is napping and we're just kind of hanging out doing things. I'll pop on like a Jane Austen and I've told him he has to watch Downton Abbey with me at some point. Um, so there are three modes of play. Brad touched on two of them. There is a solo mode. We haven't touched that, but we have played the short game and the long game. And um, they make it easy, like Brad said, for setup. If you want to play the long game, you just flip over the round marker board. It's on the other side. Yep. So it's it's really, it's really like he said, easy to get to the table. And we've played the short version, especially with our toddler, a lot more um, than the long version. But we played them both quite a few times because, like I said, I love the theme. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, I mean, the one caveat I have on the production is that the draw steam drawstring bag that holds the tiles is very poorly stitched it's kind of falling apart in our copy but um dan halligan stands behind his product absolutely and is already has a solution for that which we'll talk about towards the end of the podcast and i think in future printings that will also not be an issue we have the second edition i think the third version the third edition that's coming out soon will not have that problem this game, we talked when we did our Lost Runes of Arnak review about how there are so many more choices than you would think of for a traditional like worker placement game, right? You think of, um, you know, there's just a, a space or two on the board where you go, but there's a lot of decisions here. And one of the things I want to talk about that has a lot of decisions baked into it are the cards, the guest cards themselves, right? And you were talking earlier, Brad, that you and I have gone back and forth. Is, is this a worker placement slash deck builder? Right, right. I mean, it's definitely a worker placement game, um, even though almost all of the worker placement actions are happening on your individual board. I still consider that a worker placement game for sure. But I'm not sure if it's a deck builder, uh, as I originally classified it, because there's no market the guests that you get show up somewhat randomly. You have control over whether you're getting a prestige guest or a casual guest based on the cards you're playing. But beyond that, you know, you don't know if you're going to get the lecherous old man who has good business connections and gets you lots of money but hits your reputation and is worth negative victory points. Or if you're going to get, you know, the Earl of whatever Shire who's will super boost your reputation right yeah let's let's yeah let's talk about the cards a little bit like i said to brad i feel like how we set the table i almost have to set the cards right because there is a lot of information and choices on these guest cards that impact your 
decision when you're making plays. So Brad alluded to it a little bit. Each card has a like unique portrait that's made to look like it's in the Victorian era. And they every every guest is named. Every member of your family's deck is named. And they all have a little bit of flavor text underneath them. And most of the time, the flavor text is you know, a little witty. It's it's clever and funny. And Brad and I enjoy when we play a guest reading the flavor text to each other and giving it a little flair. Yeah. I mean, it's it's so easy to get into this game thematically. You know, we put on our poshest accents and, you know, try to tell little stories about the activities that we're hosting and the guests we're inviting, right? You know, there's the the American heiress who has, you know, lots of new money but we don't care about that it's unsavory <laughs> to associate with her and you know the eligible young lawyer that maybe you can pair off with your young lady of the house or whatever and you know they can have a nice evening stroll or something and you know you just get all these little vignettes as you play and i think it really just nails it yeah it really does um <laughs> I'm just chuckling a little bit because the last game that Brad and I played when he was saying about pairing the lady off, we ended up, we, uh, we said it was essentially a, what was the term? Oh, a sausage fest. A sausage fest. Cause yeah. we both <laughs> kept drawing only male cards and there are certain, um, estate tiles that require ladies. And we both like had to figure out what to play because we didn't want to and we'll get into it. There's a pass action, but we didn't want to pass to get ladies back in our hand. Yeah. The only ones I got for that entire game are the, the ones you start with, which is the lady of the house and the eligible young uh, miss. So I, I had two female characters the entire game. But uh, to, to talk a little bit more. Oh, sorry. Go ahead. Uh, sorry. Before you go on, I do want to back up to the cards. We were going to talk about all oh, yeah. all the things on the cards. Sure. So I'm going to set the card for you. So like I said, in the center, we have our portrait and our fun flavor text. Um, But then in the top right, you get a VP amount of what that card will be worth for you at the end of the game. And keep in mind, like Brad said, there's unsavory characters, so to speak, because in Victorian society, heaven forbid you associate with (laughs) Miss Anna Smith. And she could be worth negative one VP for you. And that's bad because sometimes our games are really close. So it matters. And then um, to the top left is a reputation number for the card. And they can go anywhere from one to whatever the Six. six. Yeah. Because depending on depending on what game you're playing the short or the long game depends how high your vp goes so they basically sorry your reputation goes so in that top left number if you're only at reputation two but you have a guest in your hand that is reputation three you cannot play them for an activity yet unless there's a special and we'll talk about this there are special things events on the board that can affect that and then below the reputation it denotes if they are a prestigious guest or just a casual guest, which are the two decks that I talked about. It's the casual guest deck and the prestigious guest. And prestigious guest matters because there are some cards that if you pair them with a prestigious guest, like Brad was saying, um, the the daughter of, the, of your house, if you pair her with a prestigious male guest, because this is Victorian England, you're trying to marry off your kids for the highest <laughs> bidder, um, then she, your your family member may get an extra, and this is in the bottom right, they may get an extra 
um, benefit to their right. card. Yeah, favor. Yeah. Uh, so uh, the bottom left of your card also then denotes if you need servants to play this guest. And Brad touched on it when he was doing his overview. You know, you could have a... Um, prestigious uh female guests that requires you know two two ladies maids because you know you she needs her i mean one's just not enough yeah right <laughs> i wish i had a couple ladies maids lately um but anyway so then the bottom right are the benefits or the favors for playing a guest and there's a variety and they're positive and negative depending on your guest so you know, it's reputation gains or loss. It's money gains or loss. It's do you get a new guest? Do you have the option of picking between two new guests, like, you know, either casual or prestigious. And some even have the option of getting rid of a guest. Like we said, it's important if you get those ones that are negative VP or you don't want to play them because the only favor they give you is like negative reputation. Right. And all of those mechanics do kind of cross over with the deck building genre right you know purging cards from your deck and adding cards and all that but i struggle with that definition because you don't control what goes in your deck right yeah i mean i i do understand that but it has the nice and i think that's one of the nice things about obsession is it's a worker placement with elements of deck building that make it fun i could buy that but uh to circle back to the theme right i think it really kind of sets the focus in a different place than most Victorian literature, which I really appreciate as well, because I'm not particularly well-versed in Victorian literature or Victorian-style TV shows or anything like that. But what they, where the game puts you, right, is you feel like a poor member of the social elite pretending to still be much better off than you are, right? Constantly ping-ponging from being flushed to being broke as you continually upgrade your estate. So you do feel like you're in an Austin or a Bronte novel, right? But you're not the love-struck youth. You are their parents trying to keep things afloat, which for me, like I said, not particularly well-versed in, you know, the tropes of these archetypes was an interesting change of pace because all I've read is, you know, a couple of the Bronte novels and a couple of Jane Austen novels for like high school and stuff. Well, and in fairness to those, I mean... It, it does, it absolutely touches on it because, and like I said, Pride and Prejudice is one of my favorite. You see that the family is going to lose, eventually lose their house and their life when the father dies because he has no male heirs, right? But what it most reminds me of is Downton Abbey in season one, and you find out like they're just trying to keep the like the estate like and that's what i think everybody gets caught up in wow these big houses and these balls and all of this but if we set ourselves in real time like if you buy an estate now estates can cost you anywhere when you use u.s dollars from like you know 50 to like a million dollars depending how big your estate is to run a year so you know take that back to victorian england and put that into pounds and that's what you're trying to figure out is how how to do this and how to make sure like your family's prestige and your children are essentially their pawns on your chessboard to help your family continue to keep their noble lineage (laughs) well respected right yeah and i mean you can tell this was a passion project 
for Dan Halligan and Kayenta Games, which I think is really just a corporation of one Dan Halligan. Um, but you can tell because he's done some things here that I have rarely seen in my long and storied history of board gaming. As an example, on page six of the main manual or the back of the glossary, which also comes with the game, is a VP distribution chart. And, you know, why don't more games do this? <laughs> right? You, it tells you right up front, you know, the average percentage of your points are going to come from here and here and here and maybe a little bit from there. And what that does is it makes a game that is a little bit more on the complex side and a little bit more difficult to wrap your head around much more approachable. Um, And you don't get a skill gap problem nearly as much because when somebody asks you, well, how do I play? You can go, well, here's how you do the turn and here's what's important, right? And somebody's already done the work for you. You don't have to kind of guess. And then if you lead them astray, you're the bad guy or whatever. It's right there. And that had to take hundreds of plays to get that distribution right, right? So that's the level of effort we're talking here. Well, and like you said, it's really nice because surprisingly, the Fairchilds, although Brad said they're very powerful cards to have in your hand, winning the Fairchilds is not the most important part throughout the play of the game. Right. It's yeah. not where the most points are, are, they tell you, are allocated. So it's not, to Brad's point, it's very clearly laid out in the rule book that the romance is not what's important in this game. Right, definitely. And... I mean, it's good that you kind of have that guide going in because every turn has so much decision space in it. And that's something I love about this game. But if you didn't have a plan or at least some kind of guidepost like that pie chart is, it would be really easy to be like, well, I don't know what to do here because I've got all these choices, right? Because on every turn, you have to figure out which workers you need to host a given event, what guests you want to invite to that event, You have to check the availability of servants that the guests are going to need. And you're going to have to juggle enough money to buy something at the builder's market, you know, et cetera. You're just always trying to build the best combo of activity and guests while minimizing the tax on your workforce and cash flow so that you can participate in that part of the game as well. And it's just, it sounds like a lot. But there's these little tricks that the game plays that just make that a much smoother experience than it could be otherwise. Well, and Brad and I also talk, we're usually having so much fun while we're playing this game that until we had to sit down and like start putting our notes together for the podcast, you don't realize like how complex some of the things are. And I just want to like Brad listed off some of those, but your estate tiles, you get the upgrade tiles for your estate and even your starter tiles, they all have two sides. And so a lot of your starter tiles for the estate start out with negative VP on them because your estate tiles are typically worth points. And there's like decisions you have to make quickly. Um, We talked about special events. There's the, the, what's it called? The fair? Yeah, the village fair. The village fair. And the village fair, if you don't upgrade your... um, essentials right and that falls under starting essential tile yeah it's your starting essential tile if you don't make that one of your first round one or round two activities on the short board it's the third round and so you miss out on it was it 200 pounds and it's uh 300 pounds pounds. and two reputations and and the action 
it, that you're taking there is your family decides to plan how to administrate the village fair. Mm-hmm. Right? So it takes the butler and then two of your family members. And Brad and I go back and forth between each other quite a bit about in the short game, is it worth it versus we definitely feel in the long game, it's 100% worth it. Yeah, in the long game, the village fair but he is and definitely I, worth. He and I sometimes strategy-wise do go back and forth on is it worth using one of your turns that early for the village fair? Because like Brad said, because of the workers, because once you play a worker, unless you have like a special tile or you get a special VP card, because the VP cards I mentioned that are on the round marker board, they have a, they'll have a numerical number of VP you get at the end of the game. If you don't play that VP card, right. but VP cards can have like special things like gain, you know, 200 pounds yeah, or refresh a worker, whatever. Yeah. So, um, so a lot of times like you have to really be choiceful because until they get back to available service, unless you have the estate market, I had one last game and that's the first time I actually had it that let me pull from, um, I'm blanking. I just said what it was, but they let you pull from the um, servants' quarters. There we go. <laughs> Got it. If um, you know, I had one that let me do that, but otherwise, like you can't just burn through your workers, or you won't be able to do an activity. Right, and that's that's where the dilemma with the village fair planning comes in, because it takes the butler and two of your family members, and the butler is a very specialized worker, and some of the most effective activities require the butler's presence. And in case we were unclear, when you use a servant, unless you have, you know, a card or you want to pay some reputation for the special action or something, they're not going to be available for two turns. So you really got to kind of plan ahead. And the other thing the butler does is he is the person that vets all the new staff hiring new workers to your pool. So if you do the village fair action early in the short game, you do not get additional workforce until significantly later in that game. And so there's a real trade-off there. Yeah, there is. And um, I want to I wanna talk one second about something else. And I always like to highlight this when I see it in games. When we talked about the high production quality is one of the things that was very intelligently done with this game is each of the meeples for the workers is unique in color and shape. So That's true. it's very um, colorblind accessible and it's, you know, it doesn't matter if you look at your card and you can't tell what color that worker is, you absolutely can tell by the shape. So I always appreciate that when I see that in games. Yeah, definitely. Any kind of accessibility options that you can add to a game certainly should do if you can. Um, so the like brad said so there's a lot of choices early on you have to make with your strategic play and like i said you want to get rid of all that negative estate tiles or the zero vp estate tiles and you have to balance that with who's in your hand and like brad said there are tiles that only take ladies like yeah or only gentlemen or yeah whatever the case may be (laughs) so like you have to hope that you know you're lucky and you're Um, guest drawing to kind of balance your hand of available individuals out for play right and it's an interesting dynamic because the game for the most part is what i would consider multiplayer solitaire 
and I don't mind that anyway, right? I think Terraforming Mars is largely multiplayer solitaire as well, and I think that's a fine game. But some people take issue with the term, right? But in this game, your points of interaction in between courtship events are really only manipulating the builder's market and, you know, trying to take from the limited pool of available workers to deny your opponents access to them. That's it. Everything else is all in your own headspace, right? And here, I think it's really to this game's benefit to be set up that way because most of the time I'm kind of checked out from what Jess is doing because I'm planning my next turn and then she'll be like, okay, here's what I'm going to do. You know, this is my activity. Here's the people. Here's the fun little vignette story that I made up for them, right? And then like, great. And then I'm ready to go on my turn. And I, and I do the same thing. I'm like, boom, 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 you know, play my activity, my people, and then it's your turn again. And it gives this game a really nice flow where, you know, it's not a particularly long game in any case, especially the short game. You can probably knock out in about an hour, but it feels even shorter than that because of the, you know, kind of multitasking nature of the game. I don't have to wait for Jess's actions because the impact on my side is going to be so minimal. I can be planning the whole time and it really just cuts down on any kind of downtime that the game might have otherwise. Yeah, the marketplace is really where it can impact. And I want to talk a second about why that can matter because we talked about the objective cards and I really love, I feel like the objective cards are sometimes wild in the VP race. (laughs) Well, they're not hugely significant as the pie chart would tell you they're not but (laughs) if you get lucky right so the objective cards have all different kinds of objectives on it and i'll just give you some examples from our most recent game mine had one point per um service right which is so your blue estate tiles for those who maybe have played the game and are trying to remember so for your blue tiles it's like you will get one vp point at the end for it um but then they might have ones where it's like 15 points if you can get these three particular sporting tiles and that's a lot of vp points right but you are stuck because those aren't typically it, those high ones don't typically include any of your starters. So you are counting on the luck of the draw from the bag and then being affordable to you on the marketplace board. So then they also do this thing where you rotate out and rotate in objective cards once or twice um, per. Uh, yeah, it's every time there's a courtship event except for the last courtship because then right. the game's over. Right. So the objective cards are kind of this, they're the one thing, like when Brad says you're not paying attention, you have no way of knowing unless you start to see that, you know, your opponent is picking up all the estate tiles that seem to be somewhat related. And it's like, oh, I bet they got an objective card. So you do have some play there, but money can, the pounds can be hard to come by. So I don't ever feel that I can necessarily block that without good reason yeah and i think where you get the most interactivity is probably in going for courtship right because the way that works is there are four courtship events a game and every time there is one nothing else happens on that turn or that round instead you look at your estate and you count up all of the vp each of the tiles is worth Uh, on its current face which can be important if you haven't used a tile yet and you haven't flipped it over or whatever the case may be Uh, and you count up the vp on those tiles right so as an example say 
you know, you're coming up on a courtship event and it's a prestige courtship event, which are the purple tiles. So when you get to that round, you count up all of your prestige tile VP and the person that has the most wins that courtship. So you get access to the fair child card and uh, a VP card. And, but everybody knows that four rounds or three rounds in advance, depending on if you're playing the long or the short game. And uh, so you can, you do get a lot of play there with the builder's market where it's like, well, prestige courtships coming up next and just just bought two prestige tiles in a row so maybe i just do my own thing instead of trying to you know luckily draw my way into more prestige tiles to try to beat her at the next courtship well and a good example of that so the theme cards are the ones that pick what um, is coming up for courtship and a good example of that was our again our most recent game um, there are special tiles called monuments and I have them, I have a note and Brad laughed when he saw, it. he's like, why do you have monuments listed as dangerous? And I'm like, they <laughs> are danger if you're not the one that buys the monument because monuments are worth a lot more points on average than normal estate tiles. Right. So for the theme cards, you flip them over. And in our most recent game, the first theme was service, but then the last theme was also service. So right. it was worth twice right it's yeah, worth double. T- double the points sorry it's worth double the points and i got a service monument so you you know brad looks at that he's like well there's no point in trying to buy up service because i'm never going to be able to buy enough and flip them to even come close to that so then you just change your strategy right of what you're right. going to do you pivot and i think that same game we had um sporting and there was a there was a sporting tile that was very affordable on the board, but Brad and I kept looking at it, both of us, for that you know that particular turn, and we were like, "There's no sense in buying it because it's negative points, and if either one of us bought it, we would lose the next courtship." Right. And if you tie on courtship, what happens is nobody gets a Fairchild card, but you both get a VP card. So right. it's better to tie than to lose unless it's a tile you need for an objective. And then it may have been worth to give it up if you feel the objective points were going to be better than that VP card. Right. And in that way, it kind of does remind me a little bit of Lost Runes of Arnak, which we reviewed um, as our second episode of the podcast. Uh, and one of the things we said about that game, which is absolutely a worker placement deck builder hybrid, is... You know, it's kind of random input, and then you use what you're getting to do the best with that you can. And in a lot of ways, Obsession is kind of like that, too. You can't control the guests that you get. You can't control the tiles that are going to be pulled out of the bag. But you have all these little decision points, like discarding objective cards, like deciding to go for courtship or not, that lead to this really interactive play loop where you're constantly assessing the board state and your resources and all that to figure out what the best plan is. And because the interaction is pretty limited, people can't disrupt that. So this is not something where somebody's going to go into the think tank for 20 minutes because it's their turn and somebody else just upended the board state with their play. Right. So you can be thinking about what you're doing, like I said earlier and uh, on other people's turns. And it just, the game just flows so naturally because of that. Well, and I want to talk a little bit about reputation, right? Because reputation is very important for your VP at the end. It's worth a lot of VP if you max out your reputation. 
But reputation, like we said, you needed to play your guest and you also needed to play your estate tiles because yeah, you're to host the activity. Yeah, yeah, to host the activity. And <laughs> we had we had one game where every single it was really early in the game and every single tile was like a five or a six and we're like, Okay, we gotta we gotta like pass somebody has to pass again and um yeah (laughs) somebody has to pass in order to be able to like clear this out so we have tiles we can buy and actually actually play other than just our normal starting tiles and so i mean you have to really plan how to balance getting money so you can buy estate tiles to upgrade your noble house and you need to have the reputation to play those estate tiles and the guests because usually what you find is the higher value the reputation of a guest the more powerful the card is when they play for their favors yep definitely yeah and uh, we keep mentioning passing so let's just describe that real quick so as you play through your stable of guests and family members they do not in any way recur back to your hand until you take the pass action and what that basically is is you skip your entire turn to get all of your cards back into your hand and refresh all of your service so all of your servants are ready to go for the next turn and then you can either get two hundred dollars or refresh the builder's market like jess was talking about which is actually a very powerful effect because there are not a lot of ways to do it and sometimes you just get stuck or you sense a trend in what your opponent is buying and decide that maybe this looks like an unfavorable builder's market and uh so you'll refresh it and then you um you get to buy after when you pass as well so uh the tempo of passing is pretty severe because you cannot host an activity that turn but it's the only way to get all your cards back so you have to do it in the game and timing when you do it i feel like is where i'm losing most of my games (laughs) most of your games no i mean i i've lost every game we've played of obsession so um (laughs) but i think where i am passing might be part of the problem for some of those losses some of them are just me doing other silly things I'm just very good at running a noble house. What can I say? Um, so th- <laughs> the, the, the passing, at least for me, strategically, is you want to pass when you have enough gold that you can give up the gold option on the pass. I'm sorry. Pounds. My husband's frowning at me. <laughs> Pounds. Um, this isn't generic fantasy. You're right. This is not generic (laughs) fantasy. Um, So you want to pass when you have enough pounds that you can afford to at least buy something in the 300 range, right? So you're not losing on a marketplace purchase at time. But you also want to have, um, and you want to have enough for that so that you can wipe out the builder's market if you want. So that's always where I try to do. I try and balance where my hand maybe isn't completely empty, but I have maximized the money I have and the the ability then to get as many cards out of my hand so that I'm maximizing pulling back my discard pile. But like Brad said, when you run into a situation where all your ladies are the are your original um was it two for the normal yeah, house, the, the last house I played with has a special ability. And we didn't really talk about that except in this 
uh, set the table. Each house has a special ability. Yeah, light asymmetry. Yeah, so one starts with a certain amount of pounds. One has an extra female character. I yeah, extra family member. Yeah, so um, so each of them has a little something along those lines. So when you have the extra female character, or excuse me, extra female guest, like I had in the last game, it made it easier for me to push off passing because I did have one more female guest than Brad did. So his hand, when he was getting all those male guests, was sometimes forced to pass a little earlier than he maybe would have wanted to optimally because he needed female guests. So the passing mechanism is is necessary and important. And again, all these things you're balancing, it plays right. into it. It absolutely plays into it because, you know, you don't want to pass end up having to pass and um, on one of the special events on the board. We mentioned the village fair and um, the courtship. That's all that happens on the courtship is the courtship. But there's also our, uh, the builder's holiday and the national holiday. Right. And they each have special things. So normally on your turn each round, you can only buy one thing from the marketplace, which can be frustrated if you're like somehow, you know, Mr. or misses money bags and you're setting on an absurd amount of pounds which to be honest i rarely ever am yeah i think that's around to me in this game um the money's the money economy is pretty tight it is and um but on the builder's holiday when it's coming up and you can see and that's the thing like your round marker very clearly you can see how many turns you have to these special events to plan for them on the builder's holiday you can buy as many things from the marketplace as you want I don't know that I've ever bought more than two and half the time it's like from the discount pile was the second one. Yeah, because, I think, I think two is my max too. Because some of the um, estate tiles and the upgrade tiles have plus on them, right? So it could be setting on 300, but if it's plus 200, you're still going to have to pay 500. Right. And the way the, t- the marketplace works, except for like when you clear it, Wherever you buy, the tiles slide down, and then you pick a new one from the bag. Yeah, and I think that everything you just said there is pretty indicative of just how much play this game has. I'm not sure we're playing Obsession well, right? Um, But I feel like there is the possibility to get to that state and end up playing Obsession well with enough repetition. Uh, just as another example, we hardly ever use the special actions, which cost reputation. Um, you can pay a certain amount of reputation to do things like get 100 pounds for two rep or refresh a worker for four rep or something. And, and one of them is actually refresh the builder's market for, I think it's like six rep or something, a, a lot of reputation. Uh, and we're hardly ever using those abilities. So that's like an aspect of the game we haven't really explored yet, which might help us optimize even more. And we've played this game several times now. So the fact that we're still finding things to like think about and take in with each new game, I think really just displays the level of depth this game has. Absolutely. I mean, I I look at those like, you know, when we talked about saying the board, those extra actions are there for your reputation that you can use. But I feel sometimes that unless you're able to get some of those prestige tiles as your activity and really jump your 
reputation, you either have to be willing to give up like a VP card to get reputation. Um, like it can be hard to come by, I feel. So giving it up, I really have to feel that the other thing I'm giving it up for gives enough value to go from for a reputation back to three or if it's you know clearing the market you know you're going a whole spin around and to explain how you go up in a reputation level there are five am i counting right there are five on, on the little board there'll be a, a little token that has the number of your reputation and then around it you have your almost it's like a little black meeple like wheel or something yeah, yeah it's like a wheel and there are five spokes in that reputation wheel and you have to move your little token around to flip your reputation up a level right so it's a count of five to get to the next level and that's when brad says you know you can spend two reputation it's essentially the tracker of your reputation um marker that you're counting back from but yeah i mean i maybe i mean you're giving me a lot to think about on how i'm going to beat you (laughs) the next time we play um I was a little offended, to be honest, that you say we're okay, not playing. That you we're play not. Obsession well. I don't think I play Obsession well. <laughs> um, so I want to talk about then. So the Builder's Holiday comes up. You can buy as much as you want from the marketplace. There's also the National Holiday, which yeah. is really interesting to me. It's the, uh, it's the social elite brushing elbows with the plebs. <laughs> yes, that's exactly what it is. And on that particular event... You may play any of your guests of higher reputation. And there are guests that have absurd reputation. Or at least it feels that way at times. Yeah, definitely. What's the, is, don't we have a promo card of the cat that I got the one time? <laughs> the cat's like nine reputation. The, it, it requires one of every servant. Yeah. So it's basically unplayable. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, is worth a ton of VP at the end of the game. So you usually don't care. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think it's Dan Halligan's cat made it into the game. Uh, and I love fur babies, so that's a nice touch to me. But the national holiday comes up shortly before the end of the game. And so it can be really powerful if you've been struggling to get your, you know, six reputation to play that high valued prestige guess who's going to give you, you know, I had one of them in one game and they gave me a VP card that was you know, I got lucky. It was a lot of points. So you hang on to that and you get an extra four or five points that can make the difference in winning the game. Right. And I just want to talk about um, Dan Halligan as a human being here for a minute. He is super active on social media and board game geek and all interactions with him to all accounts seem incredibly positive. And that's really refreshing when sometimes you reach out to a board game designer and they you know, give you the brush off. It's like, how did you not understand this? Or I don't have time for this. Or I can't believe you said this thing about my game or whatever. Right. And Dan has none of that. He's an incredibly pleasant throughout, you know, every interaction I've seen with him. I have personally reached out to him on Twitter to check the availability of the expansions for this game after the late pledge for the Kickstarter was already over. And he responded like same day and was super helpful. So, you know, I just, when we can point out great behavior from a somebody in the industry, I'd, I'd much rather do that than talk about the, the latest scandal or whatever. So you can really tell he's passionate about this game and that he loves it and he wants you to love it too, which I think is important. So we try not to cover games that, can ease, that you can't easily get anymore and Obsession is currently out of print. 
Uh, but the reason we decided to cover it, aside from it being a really great game, is that uh, the latest print run of 20,000 games is on its way to various points around the globe from the manufacturer, and it should be available in most places by Halloween, as of current estimate. Additionally, there is a useful box being released as well uh, for those with previous printings of the game. So I think this is second edition and earlier. Um, and that box mostly features small card and tile corrections and comes with a new bag as well to kind of resolve that poor stitching on the, the current bag. Um, and that's going to be available for only $5 plus shipping, 5 US dollars plus shipping uh because dan absolutely stands behind his product and he wants his game to be perfect so any uh final thoughts on obsession jess oh i have so many but <laughs> we've already gone pretty long in a podcast so um we always talk about does a game have a place on its shelf well this game not only has a place on its shelf but if you told me i had to run in and i could only save like two games this would be one of the two that's uh-huh. how strongly that's how strongly i love this game and i think it does a beautiful job of bringing if you ask me my favorite television show it's downton abbey not even close i still <laughs> miss that show and for a little bit when i sat down at the table with my husband it's as if i'm back at downton abbey with Lord Grantham and Lady Grantham and all the amazing characters that that show brought into our lives. And I feel that the designer of this game, that Dan did such an amazing job of also pointing out that despite how often the Victorian period is romanticized and that lifestyle of nobility is romanticized, that it was incredibly stressful trying to balance managing an estate and worrying about your children and your grandchildren and what your family's future would be like if you messed up your reputation if you didn't manage your money properly and I don't think I can say this strongly enough but if you enjoy any of those themes go out buy this game put it on your shelf and enjoy it forever because every time we bring this game to the table it is absolutely a great board gaming memory for me you've been listening to game night with the saints with us your hosts jess and brad st pierre if you like what you just heard please consider leaving us a review on your podcast platform of choice it really helps you can also follow us on instagram at Saint Gamers or Twitter at Saint underscore Gamers to let us know what you think and be notified when the next episode goes live. We also have a Ko-Fi account linked at the bottom of the show notes if you feel like tossing us a couple of bucks to help offset the costs of running the podcast and website. We'll be back again in two weeks with another episode. Until then, remember, it's just a game.